This week, let's, let's kind of get into it. So as we started the Great Commission last week, we started really with understanding that as Jesus was continuing fulfilling the mission of God to save and redeem humanity, that we too have been called to be missionaries of God. And, and we talked about how often with the idea of being a missionary, often, uh, at least in the culture, culture I grew up, it was very, very specific to foreign and overseas missions, which it is 100%, and it's, I'm all about that, but was often lost, or maybe not mentioned, is that we are missionaries wherever we're at. Like, wherever we're on mission, we're missionaries. So that could be in our neighborhood, it could be in our school, it could be at our job, it could be wherever else. We're missionaries called uh, to Jesus' mission first and foremost. And so we were understanding that, trying to understand what it looks like to be disciples, what does discipleship look like. I spent a long time talking about what a disciple is and what a disciple was last week. So as we continue on this week, we're going to be looking at the rest of the Great Commission. So I'm going to read uh, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, and through the rest of the chapter. And it says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so last week we left off at make disciples of all nations. So this week we're starting up with baptizing them in the name. So baptism. Baptism is one of those things that I think um, can get sometimes convoluted, what, what, what's interesting about baptism is it's not unique to Christianity. Baptism was a, a, has been around for many, many years. Uh, the Jews had a baptism. John the Baptist had a baptism. Um, the idea of, of being immersed in water or sprinkled in water, it's many ancient traditions and religions um, have that be a part. When it comes to Christianity, there's a few things we want to keep in mind regarding what it is. Because... John the Baptist baptized, and he baptized a baptism of repentance. And the Jews had, like I said, their own baptisms, and other religions had it as well. I think Romans chapter 6, verse 3 through 11, gives us a very good uh, kind of encapsulated picture of what Christian baptism is. It says, Or do you not know that all of you have been baptized into Christ Jesus, and you have been baptized into his death? And therefore we've been buried with him through baptism, baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who died is freed from sin." Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer has master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to Christ Jesus. So I would say baptism is the, um, in the Bible is an expression of an identification with Jesus Christ's death and resurrection 
so that our old self essentially is crucified with Christ through the water death, essentially going into the water. And now as followers of Jesus, we're risen to this newness of life where the Holy Spirit now we have, we have the Holy Spirit, but it, now we are expressing this identification that what's already taken place, that I have been saved by Jesus, I've been forgiven of my sin, that I have been, righteousness of Christ has been given to me. That took place, and what baptism doing is an outward expression of what's already taken place. And, I'm, and it's also a public declaration of, I am now a follower of Jesus. Here's the hard part. Sometimes, you know, I remember when I was little, I was baptized, and I believed, but I didn't have no idea, like I had no idea of what exactly I think really was going on. I mean, and that was beautiful because I think it's a childlike faith, right? But I've known a lot of people, they're like, man, I, I had no idea. Or maybe I was baptized as a baby or, or, you know, should I get baptized again? And that's something I think that there's not a clear answer to, but I think that it's okay if people want to, right? If we want to say, now that I'm following Jesus and I want to be a follower of Jesus, that I, it's time maybe to be baptized again. Um, but there's not nothing really clear specifically about that. The one thing we all want to agree on, and I think the scripture is clear about this, is baptism doesn't save us, okay? Baptism doesn't save us. Baptism is a representation of the fact we're already saved, that we've already been regenerated, we've already been, like, come in newness of life, the Holy Spirit's come upon us, like, we are changed. But what baptism does do is it sanctifies. It, it's this... Work that sets us apart. It's an outward reflection, like I said, of what's already taken place internally and spiritually, but it doesn't necessarily save. The reason why I want to mention that is there's a lot of, of, of people that believe that if I'm not baptized, then like I'm not, I'm not saved. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized, right? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Here's what's even more interesting. Paul, the apostle, right? Paul, the apostle, pretty big deal. In 1 Corinthians 1.17 said, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Why would he say that if that wasn't? The gospel is what saves, right? Baptism is, now, with that said, it doesn't say, but it sanctifies. What sanctified means is to be set apart. It means to be set apart for a specific purpose. And so with baptism, it is a public declaration that I am following Jesus now. That my identity, who I was, is, is essentially no more. And I have this, I'm this new, essentially, person, reborn, and I'm following Jesus. Christ. It's the first thing that followers of Jesus are commanded to do, and it does have that a really sanctifying effect. I mean, I remember when I was, I was eight or whatever, or seven or eight, and I got baptized, I remember like, okay, this is serious now. Like, I'm following Jesus, right? I didn't follow him very long. <laughs> you know, and here we are again, right? So God's good, but I think that even that idea of this work that Jesus is doing ultimately in us, that he's faithful to bring us back around. Being a disciple of Jesus involves um, being baptized. It really does. If we want to be a disciple of Jesus, we need to do it, not because it needs to save us, but because it's this outward reflection that we are followers of Jesus. Um, another thing I want to touch on is, it says, be baptized in the name, not names, but name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a singular name, right? It's very Trinitarian in its origin. It's communicating that, that the God of the universe, right, Father, Son, Holy Spirit is who we're being baptized in. We're given a new name. Now, what's important to understand is that in especially Eastern culture and still a lot of cultures today, that our name was, is our identity. 
often names would be given to what you did, right? Your family might be maybe blacksmiths or they might be certain things and you'd, that'd be part of your name. Your name was your identity in so many ways. It was where you had worth and value. I mean, I think we see it a lot of times in this city, right? You're like, what's, it's always like, what's your last name? Oh, you're, you're this family name. Oh, they were pioneers here, right? It's like, there's, gives this significance more, like you have significance because of your name regardless of whether or not they know you. And I think that what's beautiful about baptism is that we're being baptized into the name of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're given essentially a new name. And that really, I think, signifies we're a part of a new family. We're part of a new family. And I think that's important because often when you follow Jesus, I know I've talked to many people, they lose their family. Or the family dynamic isn't the same. Or many people, maybe they don't have a good family or they don't have a good dad. They don't, have a, they don't like their family name. It comes with a lot of history, a lot of baggage. But as we follow Jesus and we're brought in to this new family, we have a new family with new brothers and new sisters, whether we like them or not, they're, they're family, right? We're brought into a new family. And with identity, I think it's such an important thing for us to pause on. Because in Jesus we're given a new identity, it's important for us to pause and just take a look at why identity matters. When we talk about identity, what are we asking? We're asking, who am I? Right? Who am I? What are we saying there? We're like, why do I matter? What was I created to do? Why do I have value? Like, that's, who am I? It's, it's a big part, I think, even in Western culture, what makes me valuable. In our culture, I would say that our identity is often rooted in our or others' perception of um, how I'm perceived or what I do, which is really interesting. I think, especially with men, it's often found in what we do, right? Guys will meet each other for this time, and almost every time, so what do you do? What's your job, right? That's this, this identity, it's this weird thing. Like, and, and often, I think, we can find our value and our worth in what we do. And for others, maybe it's more of like how they're seen and how they're perceived. They want to be seen and perceived a certain way. And when they're not perceived that way, maybe it's, it's really, really smart or really, really beautiful or whatever else, there's this, this hit on their identity, their value, their worth. And we could spend an entire morning talking on this, but one thing that's beautiful as we're brought into this new family, we're given a new name, but we're also given a new identity. We're given a new identity, and why that's important is because we're given an identity. We don't have to earn it. It's not about how we look. It's not about what we do. It's given to us in Jesus, because in Jesus, he is that perfect image of God in the world. He is the one that did everything necessary. We get credit, essentially, for his perfection. So now in Jesus, our identity is not based on what we do, but on what Jesus has done. And our identity is not based on how others perceive us, but how the Father perceives us. And in Christ, because we've been given the righteousness of Christ by faith, and because we've been forgiven of our sins, when the Father looks at you and when he looks at me, he sees his son's righteousness. He sees Jesus. And that is beautiful. And that gives us value and worth far beyond what my neighbor thinks or what my family member thinks. And so with baptism, not only is it a new name, but it's a new identity. And we are given essentially this new mission. We're followers of Jesus. We're children of God. We're dearly loved. That's who we are, regardless of what culture 
or other people say as followers of Jesus. We have an identity, this is the beautiful part, that is declared by God and it's maintained by God, right? You don't have to maintain your identity. It's something that he has done. Like, we don't, we don't have to sit there and go, if I don't do enough, if I, then is God gonna change his view of me? Is God gonna be disappointed at me? Is God gonna be mad at me? It's like, no, he loves you. He sees his son. You're trusting Jesus. That's the work that you've done is you've said, I am I need Jesus, I need your righteousness, I need your forgiveness. That is pleasing to God. In fact, when I'm leaving that space and I'm trying to find my identity and trying to find my value and try and prove God that how awesome I am, that's the times that we need to run back to Christ. And so with baptism, it's this opportunity for those that have come and trusted and followed Jesus to publicly declare to everyone that's close to them, that I'm going to follow Jesus. And in, in that time, there's a, that's an aspect of, of obedience. It's an, a time of realizing I'm, I have a new name, I have a new family, I have a new identity, and then walking in that space. And so, let's move on. He says, baptizing in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, in verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. What did Jesus teach and command? A lot. So we have to do all of that stuff. No, don't do it. Not, that's not it. He did teach us a lot of things. One thing we always want to keep in mind is that Jesus is the promised Messiah sent by God to reconcile Israel and the world back to God, right? Demonstrating the love of God and how God loves his creation, right? Jesus came to represent, to communicate, to show God the Father to the world. He was the ultimate image bearer, right? As human beings were created as the image bearers of God, right? To image God in the world. Jesus was the true image of God. And that's why our, our John series is called God Revealed. And so the thing that I think is most important as we're trying to understand like everything that Jesus taught us, I think the biggest thrust of, of Jesus, right, is showing God's love for us, right? Showing God's love for us, right? That, I mean, even John 3.16, very common. You see it in all the cartoons, right? Simpsons even have it up there. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? So the love of God, God is love. He, he is the manifestation of love. Like, so the idea that we're loved by God is very, very important. And you need to know that. I need to know that. I need to be reminded of that that you are passionately and deeply loved by the Father. Now, why is that even important? I think that teaching this and understanding this first and foremost and learning about who God is and what he's done and how he deeply loves us in the world, this love has a changing effect on us, okay? The more I know and experience God's love for me, it changes me and it forms me. The reason why that's important is because as I live my life so often and I, and I don't follow, the, the, follow God the way I'm supposed to or I sin or I mess up or I do stupid stuff, often I'm forgetting that. Often I feel like I have to earn it back. I have to, I have to move towards it like this idea that if, if I don't, you know, like God meets you halfway. He doesn't. He actually, he's right there, right? Even when we don't make steps forward, he's coming and coming because he loves us. Knowing that God loves me forms me. It changes me. 
And I think that Jesus is first and foremost representing and teaching that element was so crucial because we forget that. That's why we want to be a, a people, a church that's formed by God's love first and foremost because it has a changing effect on us. Because here's how it works. The more that I know that I'm loved and, and, and cared for by God, I naturally want to respond by loving him in return, right? I want, like, if I'm being loved by God, I want to love him back. It has a transforming effect. The more I desire to love and please him, the more I desire to do what he asks, my desires change, my goals change, my perspectives change, I begin to change. That is the core, first and foremost thing that we, that we always need to come back to. Because I could stand up here and say, Christians do this, and Christians do this, and you better do this, and we need to do this, and this is what the commandments say, and this is this, and this, and this, and you could go out and do them, and your love for God is not changed. You're doing them now maybe out of fear or out of duty, but not out of love. I mean, anybody that's had any form of friendship or relationship or marriage, it, there's something very different when this person we cares about is doing something for us because they love us and they care for us, rather than like, fine, I'll do this thing you want to do. Like, but how often, how often is sometimes that's how people interact with God. Like, I have to do this. If I don't, God's going to be mad at me. If I don't do this, God's going to be disappointed at me. If I don't do this, God's going to, I'm not worthy enough. I'm not good enough. I have to do this. And tell you, like, you're loved by God. Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be with him. All the requirements required for us to be acceptable to God has been completed in Jesus' work, his life, his death, and his resurrection. It's all been done. And so when we sit in that space, it changes us. And it makes Jesus' commandment, ultimately the biggest thing he commanded, right, the greatest commandment, make way more sense from the space I'm loved by God. When Jesus says in Matthew 23, as he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? Matthew 22, 37 through 40 says, and this is the greatest commandment, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all the law and all the prophets. What Jesus is saying is that if you want to sum up the entire law, it is love God and love your neighbor. That is it. Super easy. No, it's not. But here's the reality. If I'm knowing more and more of how much I'm loved by the Father, my desire and my longing to, to love God in return will grow. And my, my desire to love my neighbor and my friends and my family or coworkers, whatever, more and more will grow as well because I am being loved. But here's something that's really interesting about this because I think that it can be very convoluted. We go, like, just love your neighbor. You're like, okay, like, what in the, like, okay, sure. What does that look like? Bake them cookies? Like, what are we talking about? I like this passage of Matthew, but also Luke says, and he's talking about the same thing that Jesus said, um, quoting him. He says, in the answer, you shall love your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. This idea of loving God, as we know that God loves us and we respond to it, it manifests itself in different ways. And I like how Jesus how the, how the Bible is clear that we are able to love God and our neighbor differently, right? He says heart and soul and mind and strength. Like, what does that mean? And I think this is, it's almost like love languages in some ways. And I think it's really good because here's the reality. Like, in marriage, 
I think many of us maybe experience that are married, that we love, we show love differently. And sometimes we can look like, why don't you love me? It's like, no, I do. I love you this other way. And I'm really bad at loving you the way that we really receive or, or whatever. And I think sometimes we can look out in the church and be like, why are you doing this? You know, why are you doing this? Let's look at these real quick. First off, love the Lord God with all your heart. This is the idea of internal, emotional. It's the spot of, of like deep emotion. Uh, often, sometimes it was even just translated stomach, right? Like your gut, right? It's just the heart is this in, the seed of emotion and passion, right? And, and that might be sometimes the space you're in where you're just like, like maybe sitting in a musical worship time and you're just like, wow, this is amazing. You know, you just feel like the emotion and this is wonderful and rad and, and you're just like, this is the coolest thing ever. Or, or maybe it's these really intense times that you have with the Lord. That's awesome. That's not the only way we love God, but that's awesome. Loving the Lord with our soul. This is this deep, intimate connection. Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's spending time in, in the Word and in Scripture. It's this um, maybe quiet listening, times of an intentional solitude or, or just sitting there. It's, it's this soul care, right? We're able to love God in times of, of prayer and conversation and listening. Another way we can love God is with our mind. This the mental aspect, right? Maybe you just love learning everything possible about everything possible, right? And that would include God. You love to read and, and just consume knowledge and it's tons of reading scripture and, and tons of books and all of these things. And that's how you're loving God is this idea that I want to know God more, knowledge of him. We always want to be careful, though, right, because the Pharisees did that. And in John chapter 5, 39, Jesus is speaking to them. And he says, you search the, search the scriptures, for in them, the scriptures, you think that you have life. But these are they that testify of me, Jesus, and you are not willing to come to me that you might have life, right? So when we're knowledge, God, loving God with knowledge, we're wanting to make sure that the goal is to know him, to look for him, find him, right? But we're able to love God with our mind. And then I think we're able to love God with our strength. What's that? I really think this is be like the idea of like physical, like service. Physical. Physically. Maybe it's, you, it's, it's, it's service. It's work. It's putting, it's laboring for God. It's a way I, we love God. Maybe it's this, you know, like this idea of acts of service and, and doing things, service. I mean, Romans chapter 12, verse 1 talks about this, right? This idea of worshiping and giving our whole selves to God in service. I think that it's the physical aspect of loving God, which I would say, like, body-wise, health sometimes, right? Resting. I think we can love God with rest, with honoring times of rest and, and intentional Sabbath, essentially, right? Resting. Work, service. The idea is this. As followers of Jesus, as being a diverse body of followers of Jesus and, and Christians, we're able to contribute to the body of Christ as we love God differently. And right? And so we're some might be like, dude, you don't like, we don't get into the like deep, like theological Greek and Hebrew on scripture. Like that's what I really like. It's like, that's awesome. That's, you must really love God with knowledge. And others are like, man, I just really feel like we could have a lot more emotion and stuff in, in worship and all these things. It's like, that's awesome. Like I get it, but like that's like loving God with the, with the heart or maybe it's whatever the case is, we all love God in different ways. And that doesn't mean we just stay in that lane. 
That might mean like, man, I can love God more with knowledge. I can grow in that area because maybe that's not my favorite thing. Or maybe I do need to just sit in times of soul care and just like taking it in. Like the idea is that we are all made differently and we all have different personalities, different ways that are more comfortable for us to love God. And that is okay. And so the reason why I like defining this, it might help you find your lane and it might also help you find the space that you want to grow in. Because as we're loving God, it comes to the next aspect of loving others. Because I am loved and I love God, I'm able to love others. My love for others is best displayed really as the idea of God loving them. What I mean by that is this. We are the body of Christ. And as we love other people, they're experiencing God's love from us. Not always do people sit and just have warm and fuzzies like about God. Like sometimes the best way for us to experience God's love is through one another. That's, in fact, that's what he said, right? He's like, my disciples will be known. You'll be known by your love that you have for one another. It's a marker of followers of Jesus as we love one another. And not just one another as followers of Jesus, but also our neighbor. Loving the person that doesn't know Jesus. Caring for them. And here's what's interesting. I think that if, if so often when this passage is taught, teaching them to do all, like Matthew 5, the Beatitudes is quoted, and it's, it's a long, long list of all the things that we need to be doing, and, and it's true. But I think that that passage in Matthew chapter 5 um, is a barometer of how we're loving, but it's a, ultimately it's a picture of how much Jesus has done. Because Jesus fulfilled every one of the aspects in Matthew chapter 5. Every one of the Beatitudes. Every one of those things he has done perfectly. Which, I don't know, if, I ever, if you ever read Matthew 5 this week and sit there and go, oh my gosh, I cannot believe how amazing Jesus is. Because not only did he obey in action, be obeyed in heart and desire. Motives, right? Where he says, like, he's like, yeah, like, don't have to commit adultery. But if you even think about it, you're sinning. Like, Jesus didn't even think about it, right? But the passage, and when we see these, a lot of these commands, especially in the New Testament, it's showing us this is how you love God, this is how you love your neighbor, but it's a barometer of going like, how well am I loving? And what we don't want to do is read that and go, oh my gosh, I'm terrible at this, God must be so mad at me. No, when we see the areas of failure, when we see the areas of, of needing to grow, of not doing well, we come back to, God, I'm loved by you, thank you so much, Jesus, that you died for, died for me, thank you that you've done everything necessary for me to be acceptable and loved by God. Work in me in this way so that I can love better. And now you're coming from a place of fullness, not under condemnation, not under shame and guilt, but a space of like freedom going, I'm going to move forward and try. And I, when I fail, I'm going to come back to the same spot. So as we're loving others, it's a way for us to grow in uh, even how we love God. And here's the reality. As we're loving God and loving others, our desires will change. And so when it talks about teaching them to observe all the things that he, he uh, taught, I think it starts there, right? That we're, we're teaching that you're loved by God, that God desires you to love him in return and love your neighbor. And that gives us the foundation for all of the other things that goes into that. And so what are some ways that we can love God? We can love God through, like I said, scripture. We can love God by being in community with other people. We can love our neighbor Gathering together is a way for us to love God and love one another as we come and serve one another on a Sunday and worship together on, with, on a Sunday. We're coming 
as our gathering with a way to serve one another, like even how to give, like you may not be serving regularly, but like come with fullness going like, how can I care for somebody today? Maybe somebody just needs prayer. Maybe I just need to say hi to somebody that I maybe have not said hi to. It's an opportunity for people to love. And then lastly, and behold, in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 28, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I love this. Jesus ends this text with the promise of his presence. Right? If you look even in the Old Testament, he goes, you know, Emmanuel, God with us, right? That God's desire, his presence, he's always desired his presence to be with his people. If we go all the way back to creation, he spent time walking with Adam and Eve, and then obviously sin happened and everything got broken, and so as he pursued humanity, called Israel to follow him, he desired, the first thing he desired to do is what? Put his presence back in there, and he had the tabernacle, and he, he, it couldn't be the same because of sin and brokenness, so he made all these laws so that we could come and be in his presence, and he goes, I want these feasts three times a year, and you're going to have these feasts so that you can come to my presence, and you can share a meal with me and be with me and Jesus finally comes and he is the the veil is torn from two and God's presence now dwells with us his promise is that I will be with you I mean I just love the temple picture the temple is where God's presence the creator of the universe dwelt only space in the entire world is in this little room in Israel And when Jesus came, he changed everything and he put his same spirit in each and every one of us so that where people had to traverse and spend money and travel to get to these temples to experience God maybe for a day, maybe for two days. And even then there was this great separation. Now God makes us his temple and he sends us into the world so that people can know God and experience God through us. They don't have to spend and work and travel to come to God's presence. God sends his presence to the people. And it's always been his plan. That's what Jesus came, right? The ultimate picture of that. And so now we're able to bring God's love and his presence to others around us. People can experience that through us. And so with that, we'll close our time. We'll spend some more time singing and worshiping and uh, responding to that. And just understanding that you are loved by God passionately right now in wherever you're at. Wherever you're at. You might not be a follower of Jesus, but you are loved by him. And his longing is to be with you. For you to know him deeply and passionately. And he has made it possible for you. He's done everything necessary. The righteous requirements of the law has been fulfilled in Jesus, and his death and resurrection has made it possible for you to experience the forgiveness of the sins and the stuff that you haven't been able to do. And his desire is that you respond by faith and just trust him. And for those of us that are following him, this is a good reminder too that we don't have to earn God's favor. We don't have to earn God's acceptance, his love, or anything else. Like, it's, it's already present, it's already here. And he desires to use you and be a part of his mission to reach your neighbor and your friends and your family and everything else.